Welcome to the Stone Choir Podcast. I am Corey J. Mahler. And I'm Woe. Today's episode is our second part of our discussion on the subject of race as a biological thing that has real-world consequences. Uh, before we get into it, I'd like to note that this is one of the episodes that if you do listen with children, you probably don't want to listen to this one with them. Uh, we're going to get into some details in some specifics of crimes that are sensitive. It's, it's stuff that most people don't want to hear. I guess that's kind of a trigger warning to everyone. We're not going to be too graphic. But as we talk about crime and as we talk about real work, real consequences of things, it's important at some point that we as Christians and as honest people stop sugarcoating some of these issues so that we can speak frankly. So today's episode, we'll, we'll have a little bit more of that contact than usual. The previous episode, we established the biological reality of race. Uh, we demonstrated it, I think, sufficiently that as we looked at the feedback, it was overwhelmingly positive from uh, pretty much everyone who listened either agreed and said, wow, I, I had not heard those things before, or they said, well, yeah, okay, I knew that, but I don't see why it matters. And the most negative feedback that we found found was from people saying just, I don't understand any of that at all. It didn't make any sense. I'm, I'm confused. That seemed stupid, which is very heartwarming to me because that is not a moral condemnation, which for all three of those groups, I think that if you listened to episode one on race and you did not find yourself filled with moral indignation, I'm going to tell you right now, that means that you are a political pariah today. You are a right-wing extremist because only the very most extremist racist people on the planet believe that race is biological and that it's not a sociological construct. So we weren't trying to trick anyone, anyone. We were just telling the truth. But the fact that everyone basically agreed with us makes you all extremists too. And I say that not tongue-in-cheek, but to point out the fact that when people are called extremists, it's a, a conversation short-circuiting act of malice to to call someone racist or all these other things is done to prevent any of these conversations from being taking place and this episode and the subsequent episodes are really the the conversations that no one in the world wants to have because they have implications for how we work in the church how we work in our communities and how we govern our nations and that is why we're discussing this to begin with because as Christian men, we believe that all three of those are vital for for any man. Uh, to begin with, we're going to talk about some statistics. We're not going to get too into the weeds because, again, you know, numbers in a podcast is a, a recipe for madness. No one wants to hear a bunch of numbers. We're going to have a lot of charts and graphs that will be included in the show notes for this episode. And once again, we would encourage you to look at those. Uh, but we're going to give kind of a brief overview of just a few of them to hopefully give you a sense of the scope. Because when we talk about biological race having real-world ramifications in human behavior, we're not talking about a 5% or a 10% difference. You could chalk that up to anything. We're talking about differences of 500 and 1,000 and 2,000%. Those are far too great to be ignored. And so in today's episode, we're going to discuss the specifics that are downstream from race. Now, just to bridge last week's episode where we talked about race being biological, because it is, it's not something that man invented, it's something that God created. 
to begin with showing you how that is connected to human behavior in contradistinction to the claims that many make that there's a tabula rasa man, that when you are born, you are either morally neutral or you are an empty vessel or maybe you have original sin, but everyone has an equal degree of original sin and therefore an equal propensity for sin. Those are theological questions, but science has something to say about it. Not that science has anything to say about morality, but that when you look at the facts in the universe in creation and they don't match with a moral theory that isn't actually explicit in Scripture, it's somewhat inferred, it's necessary to take another look at how you're reading Scripture. Because if creation is doing one thing and your reading of Scripture is doing something different, maybe you need to resynthesize those two things. So the first brief study I'm going to talk about here to give you a sense of where we're bridging this is a a twin study. Now, twin studies are very valuable when you're looking at human behavior because they allow you to isolate nature from nurture. I think we've all heard those terms before, and some people want to say it's all one thing and it's all another, that it's completely deterministic. The On the nurture side, they want you to think that if a Midwestern European couple adopts an African child from 6,000 miles away and raises that child speaking English, attending church, that that child will behave identically to how any of their own children would have behaved. And what twin studies show, if they show anything, and they, they always do, is that you can account for all of these other variables to the point that the only possible variable remaining is genetic. And so, again, race is genetic. When we talk about a race, we're talking about a gene pool that is held in common with a people group. So your family, if you're a father with a wife and you have three kids, that's a gene pool of five people. All the genes your kids have came from you and your wife. When you go up a level to your parents and your grandparents and great-grandparents, eventually it moves from just family into maybe ethnicity and then into something that we would typically describe as race, You or maybe race is English or European, if you want to go even further up. But as you come back down those concentric circles towards the center, the genes that are present will manifest in certain ways. And so what they found in twin studies with young twins, uh, one of the studies I found, they had 85 sets of young twins, and they found that the children, if they were identical twins, if one of those twins committed a crime as a juvenile, there was a 91% chance that the other twin would commit a crime as well. Now, that's important because you're talking about the same family. You're talking about brothers or sisters, but it would be two of each because they're identical. So they have 100% of their genes in common, and you find a 91% overlap in criminality if criminality occurs. Now, that doesn't tell you anything by itself because, well, maybe that's just the family that they were in. The reason the twin studies are valuable is that they're also fraternal twins. And when they looked at a set of identical twins and compared them to fraternal twins, they found that the correlation of juvenile delinquency, of criminality as a child, so, you know, we're talking about crimes being committed. We call juvenile delinquency lately, but we're talking about criminals. They're just young criminals. If they're identical, there was a 91% correlation in one child committing a crime and his brother or sister committing similar crimes. For fraternal twins, 
it goes down to 73%. Now, that difference between 91 and 73 is basically your indication of how much genes will have in the acts of criminality. And the remaining 73%, some of that will also potentially implicate criminal behavior being genetic and not merely social, but you can't infer it from a twin study. I want to repeat that. 91% if it's twins, they're identical. 73% if you're talking about fraternal. So about a 20% reduction, 18% reduction in the frequency. The reason that's important is that it proves conclusively that there is a small but significant factor of genes causing crime, causing an individual to commit a crime. This is tough for Christians because crime is sin, generally. Not all crimes are sin. We've talked about that in the past, but we're talking about, you know, vandalism, violence. We're talking about things that no one is going to argue these are sins. Genes are a factor in someone committing sins. Now, as Christians, that's that's a tough pill to swallow if you've never heard this stuff before because we're told that, well, you know, you have a nature to sin, and then when you have a sanctified and redeemed nature in baptism— and as you grow in the faith, that will be replaced, not completely, but to, to a large degree by your desire to obey God. And then there's the struggle between your desire to sin and your desire to obey God. Not paying any attention to religion, what you find is that the genes themselves are causing or they're responsible for some of the sin. And I think that's an important place to start because it shows that everything that we said last week about race being biological, this stuff is downstream. There are aspects of human behavior that are downstream from your genes and therefore must necessarily be downstream from your race. When it comes to twin studies, another interesting thing is that these effects hold even if the twins are adopted, which is to say you can see the effect of genetics even when you have a totally different set of circumstances with regard to environment. So you can disentangle the issue of nurture versus nature. You can demonstrate conclusively that it is a matter of nature. Because twins raised in different families because they were adopted at birth still end up displaying these sorts of similarities. And for genetics, we, have, we now have conclusive proof that there are a number of genes that correlate very strongly with criminal behavior, certain types of criminal behavior. There are a few different ones. They regulate various things. Part of it would be regulation of certain areas in the frontal lobe, the frontal lobe being the largest of the four major lobes in the brain of a mammal. That would be frontal, parietal, temporal, occipital. The frontal lobe is where your higher functions are. That's what's going to control your self-control, your willpower, various things like that. Some of these genes that are predictors of criminality are expressed in the frontal lobe. And the reason that is important should be clear. It is important because the frontal lobe directly correlates with your higher functions, with your control of self, with your willpower, with how you actually interact with the world and respond to the world. And so if you have genes that are influencing how this structure develops, how things are expressed in that structure, it is a very real difference from one person to the next if you have differences in that part of the brain, in that part of the structure of the brain. 
And one example would be one of the genes that deals with MAOI, which influences dopamine and serotonin, neurotransmitters that have to do with risk and reward and incentive for behavior without getting too deep into the neuroscience here. That's not our, our point here. The point is that there are genes, we have conclusively proven this, this is a fact, we know this, there are genes that code for certain differences in human beings that lead to different outcomes, that lead to different behaviors, and these correlate with race. When it comes to the African populations, you are going to have expressions of these genes that lead to lower levels of self-control and higher levels of violence. And that bears out in crime data. It is not because the police are biased. In fact, if you look at the statistics today, the police are more likely to shoot you if you were white. But that aside, it is not a difference in policing. It is not bias against individuals. It is that those who have certain genetic predispositions are going to be more likely to commit certain kinds of crime and therefore have encounters with the police and respond to the police in a certain way. Because, of course, if you have the genes that code for less self-control, are you more likely to remain calm when confronted by an officer who is telling you to put your hands up? No, of course not. And if you don't remain calm, are you more likely to get shot? Yes, of course you are. Does that mean that police don't make mistakes? Of course not. We aren't saying that. But if you have a population that is more prone to certain kinds of crime that lead to certain kinds of confrontations with law enforcement, you are going to see an increase in certain kinds of outcomes. And the reason that we are specifically talking about this is, again, these are moral issues. We're, we're talking about sin, and as Christians, when you talk about sin, there are certain things that are in play that are important for reconciling us to God. And as you know, especially as Lutherans, we focus on that reconciliation, on repentance, on turning away from acting in evil ways. And when we see evil in the world, our desire is naturally and correctly to want those who are sinning to repent, to turn away from their evil ways. These discussions become completely derailed in the 21st century in particular, specifically because if you exclude the possibility that race can have anything to do with any of these questions, then obviously you're left with, well, the police are unfair, or society is structurally unequal. You know, you've heard all these things before, and it turns out, unsurprisingly, or maybe surprisingly to some of you, they're all Marxist talking points. The denial of race is a Marxist talking point. The accusation that the police are racist is a Marxist talking point. The idea that race, that society itself is unequally structured in ways that disadvantage minorities is a Marxist talking point. All those words I just used, they're used by Marxists. But the linchpin is your willingness to deny that race can possibly even be a variable. Now, Corey and I are not claiming that race is the only variable. And I, I forgot to mention my intro. There's something that I want to make really clear as you're listening to this, regardless of what you think about what you're saying. There's a fallacy that's a, kind of an informal fallacy, but it's very popularly said, particularly online lately, uh, it's NAXALT, N-A-X-A-L-T. And that's, that's an acronym that stands for Not All X Are Like That. 
So in other words, if we say to you that an African in America is more likely to commit a murder than a European in America, the instinctive response from someone who has been shaped by this world is to shout an axalt, to say, not all acts are like that, not all Africans are like that. I know a black guy, he's never killed anyone. It's a fallacy because the fact that you know a guy doesn't disprove the trend. The fact that the numbers bear out the trend proves that something is going on. And it is entirely, it's an entirely fair question to ask, are the police being unfair to one group? That's a fair question. We're not saying that's not a fair question. We're saying that the conclusions that are reached in many cases are false. As Corey said, I'm a white man. I'm far more likely to be killed by police than a black man who behaves in the same way as me. Now, I behave in a very law-abiding, boring way, so I'm unlikely to be confronted by a cop, but in the event of any police confrontation, I'm more likely to be killed because there's not a social stigma to a cop shooting a white guy. There's no one who's going to riot on my behalf if I end up dead, whether the cop was right or not. No one's going to care except my family and a few friends. Everyone else would be like, well, you know, whatever, he got shot, he probably deserved it. The opposite is true whenever it's a non-white who is involved in a physical confrontation with the police, with any authorities. It always is automatically assumed that they were singled out for some completely unfair reason. Now, as I just said, it's not an unfair question, but it is an unfair accusation because it's usually not the case. Even in in places where you find that there is disproportionate use of violence against African Americans versus white Americans, you still have to ask yourself, what was the individual doing in all of those cases? If a cop tells me to put my hands on my head and get down on my knees, I'm just going to do it because I don't want to get beat and I don't want to get shot. As we all see over and over again in police videos, that is often not the reaction from African Americans. Increasingly, as this sort of rhetoric has taken hold in the world and they're being told, the cops are out to get you. You're a victim. Well, when a cop pulls someone over who's African American, he may already be primed by that rhetoric to think, I'm being victimized. I'm the victim of a crime right here. And it's a cop who's committing the crime. So there's a natural instinct, even on top of the genetic factors, to think, maybe I should fight back. Maybe I'm fighting for justice if I wrestle this cop. Who's more likely to get shot at that point? Me, who gets it on my hands and knees, or get, get down on my knees with my hands on my head, or the guy who fights the cop and reaches for his gun? I think any honest person will tell you, the guy who fights the cop is more likely to get hurt. Now, if it is Africans who are more likely to fight the cop, then yes, it is Africans who are more likely to get hurt by cops. It does not follow that the cops are more likely to hurt Africans. What follows, potentially, and I think the data bears this out, is that cops are more likely to hurt Africans who try to kill them in the pursuit of a lawful arrest. You can't tease any single factor out of any of this. And all we're trying to do with this discussion is to make the biology of race and the factors that are a fundamental element of the human experience that come from our race, they're a factor in these societal concerns. Because when George Floyd passed a fake $20 bill while he was high on a level of fentanyl that was going to kill him whether or not the cops showed up. Someone called the cops because he was committing a felony. 
He was arrested. He refused to be put in the car, despite them having pulled him out of a car. He said, I'm claustrophobic. I can't be put in a vehicle. I can't breathe. Now, the video that most people see begins at that point with the guy in handcuffs saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. If you pay attention, he was saying he couldn't breathe when he was being put in the back of the vehicle while he was still upright. But the, the video usually doesn't start there because that doesn't, it doesn't tell the story that we were all told to believe was which was that the cops murdered a man who was peacefully being arrested. If you bring Givens to that scene that deny the possibility that maybe a population group is more likely to behave in a certain way, of course you're going to think, well, the cops wouldn't have done that to me and they did it to him, so the cops were bad. Well, what we're telling you is that the cops probably wouldn't do that to you because you wouldn't fight them. And the fact that whites are still more likely to be injured or killed by cops in arrests is not about the fighting. It's about, again, the fact that a cop is going to go to much further lengths typically to not use a gun when there's an African-American involved because they don't want to be, they don't have their house burned down. They don't want to go to prison for the rest of their life like Derek Chauvin is facing for a lawful arrest. It's perfectly sensible that they would take more care and be less likely to escalate violence, even when the violence is justified by the force use of force guidelines that their own police departments have in play. Because if you do it to a white guy, you're not going to get in as much trouble. That's a factor. And it's a factor that gets ignored when these conversations are being had. But when it comes from the church, and when it comes from places like the New Large Catechism with annotations, they say things like the cops are being mean to minorities. They're being mean to African Americans at a higher degree of frequency than to whites. That's not fair. They're being racist. If race is a factor, then there's other things going on. And as an honest person, you must look at those other factors before making any decision. You may look at all of the data honestly and still conclude, yeah, the cops are racist. And there are cases where the cops do bad things. Cops are human beings and some of them are dirty. That doesn't mean that all police are automatically bad, just as it doesn't mean all police are automatically good, or that all suspects are automatically guilty and deserve to be killed. The other side doesn't hold either. All suspects are not automatically innocent and they're not automatically not fighting back and deserving a level of force that in some cases might get someone killed. When you look at all the facts, you must conclude that you haven't done your due diligence to have an opinion until you've looked at race as a factor, specifically because race has behavioral manifestations that as a Christian, you say, well, that's sin. And if you're a someone who's just a statistician, you're going to say, oh, well, those are crime statistics. When you're dealing with the reality, you have to look at all the variables, and race is always a variable. And in these cases, it's frequently the most important variable. So let's look at crime for one particular city, just as an example. These data are from 2010. You will find, if you start looking for this, that it is increasingly difficult to find data from the last handful of years, because these reports, produced by the government, incidentally, are very embarrassing to the government, because they do not match the narrative. Now, there are actually problems with these data, but unfortunately for those who would try to say that it is systemic racism or something to that effect, the data are actually biased against whites and in favor of others. Because, for instance, the FBI 
has long in some of the reports held Hispanic to be a victim category, but not a perpetrator category, and so they're lumped in with whites, which obviously raises the white crime rate, as you will see very shortly here when I read this table of data. But anyway, these are data from Chicago in 2010. I'm going to give you the multiple of the white crime rate with regard to the Hispanic and black populations. So to say that another way, to make sure that it's entirely clear, if per a given number of the population, a thousand, a million, whatever, whites commit one crime of this variety, I am going to give you the multiple for the Hispanic population and the black population. We'll start with narcotics, arrests for narcotics. Hispanic, 2.5. That's 2.5 times as likely as whites to be arrested for narcotics. Blacks, 11.5. Auto theft, Hispanics, 4.5. Blacks, 19.9. Sexual assault, Hispanics, 4.9. Blacks, 10.4. Robbery, Hispanics, 3.9. Blacks, 27.3. Murder, Hispanics, 6.7, Blacks, 23.8. And again, that is to say that it is 23.8 times as likely that the arrestee is Black It for these data, Chicago 2010 for murder. As can be seen, there is a very clear racial component to violent crime. And this plays out across every city in the U.S. We could show you data for any large city. They're all the same. And it's not just the U.S., because of course there are those who will try to say, well, the U.S. has this history of X, Y, and Z, and so of course this happens to minorities. No. It is the same in London. It is the same in Paris. It is the same in pick any major city. Pick a major city in South Africa. It plays out everywhere the same way. Race is a determining factor for crime rate. The data are very clear. They are irrefutable. We know this. And now, of course, there are those who will say, well, how do we know that it's race? Maybe it's poverty. That's the one that is often brought up, or unemployment, or education. These are the three big ones that usually come up, and we're told if they only had more opportunity, if they had jobs, if they'd been educated, if we had welfare, wealth transfers, then we wouldn't have the crime rate. And it's fair to ask that. It is, in fact, good to ask that. You should ask that question. But it doesn't work. Here is the correlation. Now, if you've taken statistics, you will understand how this works. If you haven't taken statistics, a number that is closer to one is a higher correlation. A higher correlation very strongly implies there is a causal relationship. And yes, of course, someone is currently screaming that correlation doesn't mean causation. Well, it winks at it, and usually it does mean it. And in this case, it does, because the, it's the sole explanatory factor. But for instance, we'll start with poverty. If you map poverty onto violent crimes per 100,000 population for a large city, the correlation is 0.36. That is a weak correlation. You are looking for a strong correlation. You're looking for something 0.7 to 0.9 range. So let's look at the percentage of those who did not complete high school. Increasing percentage didn't complete high school. Does it correlate with an increasing violent crime rate? 0.37. Not much stronger, 
than poverty. Let's look at unemployment. For unemployment, if you have an increasing unemployment rate, does that lead to an increase in violent crime rate? Point three five, Even less of a predicting factor, even less of a correlation than poverty and education level, or lack of education in this case. Now let's look at the percentage of the population that is black or Hispanic. Point eight one. That is a very high correlation. That is an explanatory factor, and we see this again playing out in every major city across the world. This is not uniquely American. It is not unique to big cities here. It is not unique to a region. This is simply a trend that holds across the world. And so as Christians, we have to deal with this. We don't simply get to ignore it, shove it under the rug, hand wave it away, because that would be a betrayal of our brothers and sisters to whom we owe a duty. We owe a duty of care to those who are entrusted to our care. And that requires us to look at the world, not through rose-tinted glasses, but with open eyes, to see the reality of what is represented in these data, and then to act appropriately with regard to these data to achieve proper moral ends. I have some similar data from the 2021 collection from the FBI, so it's nationwide, and it, it, it bears out exactly pretty much identical to what you find wherever there are African populations. Uh, there are a couple other points I want to tease out from that. We all know that men are more violent than women. That's It's our nature. A man has, on average, 15 times more testosterone than a woman, regardless of race. I don't know how, how it adjusts for race, but more testosterone typically correlates to higher degrees of aggression. Now, that doesn't say anything about self-control. It just means that men are more likely to behave in a violent way than women are. And we see that in the FBI crime statistics for whites. In the U.S. in 2021, a white man was five times more likely than a white woman to kill someone. So you're, you know, five, that's five times greater when you're looking at men versus women. What's interesting is when you compare white men to black women, then you find that black women are 1.7 times more likely than white men to commit murders. So that's, that's tremendous. That's a huge increase where the population of women among Africans is more homicidally violent than white men. You're never going to hear anyone tell you that because, because of the implications. What does it mean as a society if there is this preponderance for violence and for brutal violence? We're not just talking about fistfights or arguments. We're talking about dead bodies being attributed to individuals. The nationwide average was, as Corey said, 18 times more likely for a black man to kill than a white man. And one really startling statistic that emerges is that the, I have this race, this data broken down also by age. So that 18%, or sorry, the 18 times is specific to everyone between the ages of 18 and 64. So basically peak physical condition for men, you know, from, from their adolescent years until you start to get too old to really do too much violence, 18 times more likely. However, again, the average for white men is about five. The average for black males between the age of 5 and 14 is also 5. A 5 to 14-year-old African boy is more likely to murder you than any white man, regardless of circumstance. 
that's that's tremendous when you consider the the physical disparity and the what would cause a five year old to fourteen year old. Obviously, that probably slews more towards the what we call the teenage years. It, it's probably mostly over ten. I don't have that broken down, but the fact that that degree of violence would be found among kids who are so small that yet they can still cause a death. Obviously, that's probably mostly talking about weapons. Uh, usually, it's going to be firearms. Sometimes it's going to be knives. That's something that has societal implications. And it goes beyond simply, wow, we have a sin problem, or wow, we have economic problems. These statistics bear out over and over again. And Corey said this, but he didn't make it explicit. When we're talking about worldwide, we're talking about Africans behaving with this degree of violence wherever they live. It doesn't matter if they live in the U.S. or if they live somewhere in Africa or if they've been imported to somewhere in Europe recently, as happened many, many times. There are millions and millions of Africans living in Europe today who aren't living there at the turn of the century. That's artificial, and it's causing violent crime to go through the roof in places that never had any crime before. And we're talking about sin, but as Corey said, we're also talking about care for your neighbor and care for your own brother according to the flesh. An African is not my brother. He may be my brother according to Christ, but he is not my brother according to the flesh. That's not an insult to him. It is not demigrating him as a man or to say he is less than. It is to say he's not physically my brother. I have a duty to my brother. Scripture makes that clear. And a failure for us to look to our own to make sure that they are cared for has moral implications too. I have a study here from the National Institutes of Health just to flesh out the the issue of testosterone level and criminality because there is a correlation there. We are not going to deny that men commit more crime and there is some correlation with testosterone level because, of course, testosterone, if it's high enough, is going to lead to certain kinds of impulsivity as any male who has gone through puberty is well aware. Between the ages of 12 and 15, black males actually have lower testosterone than white males. However, black male testosterone rapidly increases around that age, and then from the ages about 20 to 39, blacks have a higher level of testosterone than whites. This is just comparing men, because obviously women have testosterone as well, and there are hormonal considerations for women and criminality as well, but we're focusing on men right now. However, testosterone level for blacks drops off precipitously after that age and falls much more rapidly than for whites. And one of the effects that we see of this is actually not a, it's not a criminal matter, it's not criminality, but we see health consequences of this because testosterone level correlates inversely in later life at any rate with prostate cancer. And so we see much higher rates of prostate cancer in blacks than in whites. So, for instance, between 2015 and 2019, the incidence of prostate cancer in black men was 176 and some change per 100,000. It was only 104 for whites. And that's purely a matter of genetics, a matter of testosterone level, particularly when you're over the age of 40. And so this is, again, an instance of genetics influencing and to some degree, indeed, determining behavior. Because yes, we, we're not saying that you don't have free will. We're not saying that 
human beings cannot choose not to commit a crime. That's not what we're saying. We are saying there are certain impulses, certain incentives inherent to certain genetic groups. You are going to be more prone to certain behaviors if you have a certain genetic foundation. And of course, we all know this. And as Christians, we have to affirm this, because for instance, if you are genetically male, you are in fact programmed to like women. If you are genetically female, you are programmed to like men. Worth noting, actually, just as a sort of aside, that the CDC hasn't quite updated their charts yet, and prostate cancer is listed as exclusively a male issue. Denying the, <laughs> yeah, I know they, they, they're someone will get in, someone listening to the podcast, someone's going to get in trouble for that because it does say male on the chart. It's only men who can get that because, of course, only men have a prostate. To be explicit, those that programming for a man to like a woman and a woman to like a man, that's not societally assigned. That's not culturally conformed. That's from God. God yeah, made that desire. Yes. It is purely biology. There, the fact that there is a corruption through culture of impulses and of perceived desires does not change. That God made us a certain way. And although that can be corrupted over time in genes, and it can be corrupted societally and culturally, it doesn't change the fact that when we talk about how God made us, that is only to his glory. And wherever there's detriment is ascribed to sin and to the fall. But we cannot, we cannot exclude those factors just because they make us uncomfortable. And it's worth emphasizing that here. Insofar as anything is good in human nature, because of course human nature created by God, corrupted by the fall, corrupted by original sin, our nature is not original sin. Our nature was not replaced by original sin. That would be a heresy because that would be to say that Satan created our original nature. No. Original sin corrupts our nature. Insofar as anything good remains in human nature, that is from God. So the fact that men are attracted to women, that is from God. The fact that women are attracted to men, that is from God. The fact that certain populations have a genetic predisposition to criminality is not from God. That is a corruption of their nature due to original sin and due to generational worship of demons. There are real consequences in the real world, in the flesh, for those who worship demons. And these accrue over time, we clearly see, from history and from nature. It is not consequence-free if your ancestors, for 6,000 years, give or take, worshipped demons. God blesses those who obey, he just as certainly curses those who rebel. And that is what we are dealing with here. We see these issues in certain populations because their ancestors worshipped demons. And they worshipped particularly heinous demons in particularly heinous ways for a very long time. Now, I am not saying that Europeans did not have pagan ancestors because we did have a period of paganism in our own lines, in our own history. It's difficult to pin down exactly when it started. We know very well when it ended because we have that history written down by the Christians who went and converted the pagans back to Christianity because, of course, they were originally Christian. When Japheth stepped off the ark 
He stepped off the ark, a Christian. He moved to Europe, a Christian. He taught his sons Christianity. They taught their sons Christianity. At some point, the demons came in, it broke down, they started worshipping demons, they became pagans. They did not become as bad as many other pagans. Child sacrifice was not as common in Europe. They did not engage in cannibalism. They didn't share their wives. They didn't have communal wives. And you can read even pagan Roman authors who commended the Germans, as they called them, it was the Germanic tribes at the time, for their morality with regard to sexual ethics. And that's from a pagan source. So this is not something that is just made up out of the ether. We know this. We have documentation for this. The degree to which you fall to demon worship and the depth of the depravity and the evil in which your ancestors engaged can vary across populations. The Canaanites in Scripture singled out for being particularly wicked, so wicked that God told the Israelites to destroy them utterly. The pagans in the New World, when the Spanish conquistadors and others found them, were so wicked, so depraved, that it was incomprehensible to the Christian conquerors just how wicked these people were, what they were doing, the evil acts in which they were engaging. That was not the case with what was found by Christian missionaries when they moved north into European territory. Yes, the European pagans were worshipping demons. Yes, they had fallen away from God. No, they had not fallen as far. Would they have? Almost certainly over time, yes. But they had not yet. And so there are real consequences for this, and that is what we see playing out. That is what these data reflect. These data reflect the consequence of moving away from God. The comments you just made are something that was the basically the second hour of our episode a while ago on election. If you haven't listened to that yet, or if you haven't listened to a while, it's, it's worth going back and re-listening to it, because we make the case there, which is being re reiterated here, that when we say that there are substantial biological differences that have moral consequences in population groups, in racial groups, it is not a judgment against those groups because we don't like them or because they look different. It is, in fact, rooted in the history of those groups. As Corey said, and as, as you can hear in the election episode, when they came off the ark, there was no evidence when Christians finally got to the, to the New World and got into the center of Africa between about 15 and 16, 1700 AD, there was no evidence that anything other than absolute demon worship had ever existed in those places. They had an extra 2,000 years nearly on top of the Europeans of communing with those demons, and the consequences exist to this day. One of the maps that we will include in the show notes is a so-called diversity versus homicide rate map. And it's two maps broken down by county of the United States. It shows county by county color coding demographics. So are the counties more than 85% white, or do they have more than 20% African American, Asian, Hispanic or Latino, or Native American populations? And then right beneath it is a homicide rate chart. You can look at both of those maps that are color coded differently, and you can clearly see from the maps where the Africans and where the Indians live by the homicide rates. Now, that's exactly what Corey was just intimating with those comments. 
the fact that the Indians for 4,000 years communed with demons has consequences. And the Marxists want you to believe it's poverty, it's structural racism, that they are they were put on reservations and we were mean to them, and that makes them more likely to kill themselves and to kill other people. That's a theory. It's a theory worth examining, and it's a theory that's been examined, and it doesn't fall, it doesn't hold water. It falls apart completely when you look at these other factors. The same is true with Africans. There's a huge belt in the South, primarily, where most African Americans live to this day. The only exceptions, fascinatingly, where you don't see, where you see large African American populations elsewhere in this country are cities. They're the once formerly great cities, primarily of the Midwest. If you go back to the turn of the, the 20th century, so 1900, and you look at depictions, either pictures or just descriptions of life in Baltimore, in Chicago, in St. Louis, in Cleveland, these places had art and refinement and peace and beauty that rivaled any European city of the same day. Why? because they had been created and built by Europeans in the fashion of their culture. That changed after the Great Migration, which is a, a complete euphemism. There was a deliberate movement of African Americans from the South into these cities, and it was principally pushed by industrialists, not all of them in those cities, but what they wanted was cheaper labor. If they could, because the, the native populations, the white populations in those cities were getting to be more expensive than the capitalists wanted to pay them. So what they do, they started a program of busing African-American men up because they would work for a whole lot less because they had, they had been living in absolute poverty. And we will talk in the IQ episode in a couple weeks about why there are poverty differences among population groups. We're not really going to get into that today, but again where we are told by Marxists that, oh, that's society being mean, that's you being racist, that's someone discriminating. When you look at the data, it almost always comes down to IQ. That's a subject for another day. But the fact of the, the so-called Great Migration moving these populations of African Americans into these northern cities seeded their destruction. When I say St. Louis or Chicago or Baltimore today, almost no one is going to picture the sort of idyllic places that you can see if you look at, you know, the World Fair, you know, a century ago when it was happening in some of those places. What changed? Demographics changed. It wasn't politics. It was that the demographic mix shifted from being almost entirely white cities to being cities with very large African-American populations. And that has real-world consequences. It's something that if we're honest with ourselves— we have to at least acknowledge that changed something. And we're not going to get into prescriptions for what we do about it today, but I think that if you're going to be honest with yourself, you have to confront the fact that when you look at a map of violence and you look at a map of race and they're the same picture, you can't, if you're honest with yourself, just chalk that up to, well, they must have been disadvantaged somehow. Where did you get that? You didn't get it from data. You got it from someone telling you that to make you feel better, to make you feel like all these people are exactly the same, and I'm not going to look too closely because I might not like what I find. So let's talk about another crime. We did say that this might be an episode you might not want to listen to with your children, so let's talk about rape. Again, I'm going to give data 
for multiples of the white rate. These data are for California in 2013. Forcible rape, California, 2013. The white rate, of course, again, we're going with one because that is the standard by which we are comparing the others. The Hispanic rate, 2.25. The black rate, 6.36. Now, that only tells part of the story. And the reason that only tells part of the story is because you have to know the percentages of the population in order to know how meaningful those numbers are. This is a game that many will play, particularly on the left, when talking about violent crime. They'll use absolute numbers instead of per capita. And if you use absolute numbers, if you're talking about a population that is 90% of the total, well, obviously the absolute numbers are almost certainly going to be higher than those of the remaining 10%. And so you have to talk about per capita. You have to talk about relative percentages, relative numbers. In 2013, the racial makeup of California, 39% white, 38% and some change Hispanic, 5.7% black. Now, back to those numbers. If 5.7% of the population is black and they commit 6.36 times as many forcible rapes as whites, the actual multiple is 110. It's a little over, that's 100 and a little over 110. I can't do that math in my head exactly. That is an immense increase. That is astronomical. How much higher of a rate of forcible rape you have attributed to the black population than the white. And it is worth noting that if you look at the FBI data, white on black rape does not happen. It is a zero in the tables. Basically, all of the interracial rape in the U.S. is black on white. There's some Hispanic on white as well, but less of that. It is almost all black on white. And so when Christians pretend that these things don't matter, what you're saying to every woman who has been forcibly raped is you don't matter. I don't see race. I don't consider these things. You're telling her she doesn't matter. And that's why these things matter. That's why we are discussing these issues. That's why it is important. Because you have to recognize the reality if you are going to set appropriate policies to protect your people. And if you don't, you are telling them you do not care about them. And that is not Christian in the slightest. We now have generations of men who have been derelict in their duty, who have not protected women from these sexual predators. They have done nothing about it. They have made the situation infinitely worse. And they have shouted down anyone who dares to even read the table of data. And this is from the California Department of Justice. This is published by the government. These are probably biased against what we are saying. So the reality of the situation, it's probably far worse. And when we talk about this subject, and we talk about it in the United States context, we're talking about it in terms of crime. So we have a concept of rape. It's obviously a, an evil, violent, horrific invasion of another person. It's one of the worst things you can possibly do to another human being. That is what we as Christians believe and understand. However, 
if you talk to someone who has spent time in Africa living among Africans as themselves, and they're honest with you, they will tell you that in Africa, they do not typically have any concept of rape. What I mean by that is that when a boy or a man reaches sexual maturity and he is filled with desire, he will see a woman or a girl. It may be a relative. He will go over, he will bend her over, and he will have sex with her. And that's perfectly normal. Now, to us, that's absolutely shocking. And we say, oh, well, that can't be. And you might come up with 100 conclusions and 100 excuses and say, oh, well, that's just cultural. Well, when we see the similar behavior in other countries, which is exactly what we see, when these people move to Europe today, when you have someone taken from Africa today and they move to Europe, or some of the Middle Easterners who are very similar move to Europe, the rate of rape in those places has skyrocketed. And many of them, when they're charged and they're interviewed, they will flat out, they'll be confused. They'll say, I didn't know it was against the rules. Because in their mind, they have a sexual urge, they see someone with whom they can satisfy that urge, and they just do it. There's no notion of criminality baked into the system. Now, you can argue potentially with those who are coming from Africa, oh, that's entirely cultural. But the missionaries will tell you it's an incredible uphill battle to try to convince these people to stop raping their own family members. Because that's what it is. It's incest and it's rape. And they don't see anything wrong with it. And we wonder why they were still living in the Stone Age when we found them. The fact that you see similar rates of violence of a sexual nature in the United States by populations that in some cases left Africa three and 400 years ago, we're telling you that there's a genetic basis for what we describe as criminality and amorality. And that's an extremely hard thing for people to hear. And I'm sure that there are many who will flatly reject even the possibility that that could be true. That there could be a genetic basis for something as evil as rape or murder. You're not going to find an alternative explanation because there's no other factor in any of this that remotely correlates to the behavior that we see. And as Corey was saying, when we bring these people from a foreign land into our own lands, you know, they're, they're Ethiopians being shipped to Columbus, Ohio all the time. It's happening all over the country. And then they act like Africans in Columbus. Can we even get mad at them? That's, it's such a disconnect between our expectations and our requirements for being a human being who's civilized and what they're used to and what they find to be acceptable. You can't simply read them the Bible and hope that you're going to fix these problems. I, I hate to say that because I know that that's, it's something that as Christians we, we can't deal with. Well, I told them about Jesus and they said they believe in Jesus, but there's still more violence and there's still more of all these other crimes. It's not that God cannot turn a man's heart. It's that when you have someone who's been so horrifically broken by 4,000 years of communion with demons that has literally baked some of that additional evil into their genes, we today are being subjected to the consequences of things that happened thousands of years ago. 
And when a Marxist will tell you there's no genetic basis for race, it doesn't even exist. There's no genetic basis for behavior. That's nonsense. It's all learned. It's all cultural. If you believe that, then you're left defenseless. Because when someone says, hey, I'm going to ship a bunch of Ugandans to live next door to you, if you don't love them, you're not a Christian. Jesus would love them. Jesus would let them live in, move in next door. As Christians who are honest, we must deal with the facts. We must deal with Scripture, and we must also deal with the human beings in front of us. And if the human being in front of you is 120 times more likely to rape your sister or your wife or your mother or your children, you must be cognizant of that. You can't ignore it. You can't pretend it's socioeconomic factors. You have to deal with it. And you must deal with the fact that even though not all Africans are rapists, there are so many more who rape and murder that it is a societal plague in our own lands and in every land where they go. One of the other homicide rate charts that we have is specifically about, uh, this is just homicides per 100,000. It's broken down by country, and it one of the beautiful things about this chart, it's one of the only ones I've ever seen, it has the United States, but it separates United States Africans from white United States. So you're separating the European stock Americans from the African Americans. And what you find on this chart is that the rate of white homicide is comparable to some of the most boring places in Europe. White American homicide rates are comparable to Belgium, while African American homicide rates are right between Equatorial Guinea and Nigeria. And Rwanda is just a bit further to the south, and when you have Botswana, just a little bit better than African Americans. That's the correlation we're talking about. Wherever an African is on the planet, he's going to have African problems. That is not to say that they must be punished or they must be treated unjustly or they must be called names. It is to say that when you're dealing with a population of Africans, not an individual, maybe the guy that you know, your black friend is the best butt guy in the world. We're not talking about an individual. We're talking about a group, and that's permissible for Christians to do. When the Holy Spirit said that all Cretans are liars, he wasn't lying and he wasn't being racist. The Holy Spirit was telling the truth by generalizing about a group of people. It is wisdom to do so, and it is not hateful to say, look, this group of people is going to behave in a certain way. Let's deal with them as they are rather than making excuses for it and rather than subjecting ourselves to things that will harm us and harm our neighbors and our brothers. That is the moral argument for even talking about this. You can reach your own conclusions. You can look at this data. We're not trying to dictate to you policy prescriptions. We're not saying, look at all this data, now we need to do this. We have our opinions about that, and maybe we'll share them at some point. But all I'm imploring you to do today is to look at reality and not lie about it. Not say that, well, these people are just like me because of whatever. They're not just like you, and that's not hateful. If someone is different than you, maybe it's to their advantage, maybe it's to your advantage. It's not even about seeking advantage, it's just about looking at what you're dealing with. When you're dealing with an African population anywhere on earth, you're dealing with astronomically higher rates of violence, both physical and sexual. You're dealing with someone who's going to do things that as Christians we call sin, and as a society we call crime. And if we can't be honest about that, there's no possibility to even have sane discussions about what we do 
as a government, what we do as a society, what we do civilly. And as a church, what do you do? What do you do when you have a population that you know is more likely to rape and murder your, your neighbors? Do they need more ministry? Yes. Do they need more supervision? Yes. Do they need to be watched? Yes. Because for the same reason that you would watch a tiger versus a goat, you need to watch someone who's more likely to do harm than someone who's less likely to do harm. That's not hateful. How you do that can be hateful. It can be mean. It can be malicious. We would never advocate that because it's not what we think. But we think that protecting our own, our brothers according to the flesh, as Paul advocated in his own epistles, that is something that a Christian has a duty to do. This isn't optional. What you do with the information should be informed by God, but it cannot be to ignore the facts and to ignore the implications of these things. And additional proof of this disparate behavior with regard to the races when it comes to sexual morals and behavior also plays out in STI data. And you can see this from the CDC. I have the data from 2020 pulled up here. And the rate of syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia, the three of the big ones they monitor, are astronomical in the black population compared to the white population. Multiples of the rate in the white population amongst blacks. And I'll add these into the show notes. But you see very real consequences in addition to the fact that you have these crimes being committed. You see other follow-on consequences because, of course, STIs are a follow-on from sexual sins. And that is spread by sexual sin. And it continues to get worse as long as that sexual sin is not brought under control. And so we have these things spreading like wildfire through our population. But if you put it on a map, you can see there is a racial component. It is spreading much more frequently, much more deeply, much more widespread in areas with African populations. Because they are behaving the same as they would behave in Africa. Because there's no such thing as magic soil. You do not become Japanese because you live in Japan for a while. There are Europeans who were born in Japan, who speak Japanese, who lived for decades in Japan. They're still European. Because what you are was created by God, and God did that through genetics. And so you are the result of your parents coming together. They're the result of their parents coming together, so on and so forth, back to Adam and Eve. You do not become something different simply because you moved somewhere else for a while. And so you are going to see these populations behaving in certain ways in accord with the fact that they are part of that population. Yes, you are going to have some cultural, some societal influence, but it is primarily nature. The best way to think about it, the difference between nature and nurture, and this will again come up multiple times in the IQ episode, Nature sets the boundaries. So if you think of it as a spectrum, nature sets the possibilities. Nurture determines where on that line you ultimately fall. And so in the case of intelligence, you could be you know, plus or minus a standard deviation, say. Your nutrition, your upbringing, your education, all of these things are going to determine where you fall within that range. It is the same for these sorts of behaviors we're discussing here for criminality, for self-control. Because I have said self-control a number of times this episode because it is a very big contributor to this. 
children who have self-control, willpower, are more likely to succeed in the future in their lives. And you can test this very early on. You can set a piece of candy out and tell a child, and they've done these studies. They, we have the results. They're very solid. You tell the child, if that candy is there, when I get back, I will give you two candies. White children and Asian children, much depending on which part of Asia, but much more likely to wait. To wait for that second piece of candy. Because obviously, that is the rational choice if your goal is more candy, which it is for children. But you can do that only if you have the willpower to do so. Africans eat the piece of candy. Because it is a matter of genetics. It is a matter of whether or not you have the foundation for the sort of willpower necessary to think into the future, I would rather have the greater reward then than the lesser reward now. And that is what plays out in the sex crimes and various other things, because if you are of the mindset, part of this is time preference is what I'm talking about, really. If you are of the mindset that, well, I really want this item, this piece of candy, so I'm going to go and steal it because I want it now. There's no delayed gratification. There's no thinking through of, well, I could work for it, earn it, pay for it, and have it. No, it's I want it, so I'm going to take it. And that's what happens with rape. I want it, so I'm going to take it. That is why you get these crimes. And so we have to deal with the fact that we have populations in our countries now who think like this, who behave like this. You have to address the issues as you find them, not as you would prefer they could be or were. We aren't dealing in an ideal world. That's not what happens in reality. In the kingdom of the left hand of Christ, we are dealing with reality. And we have to deal with it as we find it. Certain populations are prone to certain behaviors. And so it is incumbent on the state to react in a certain way. It is incumbent on Christians to recognize these things and to behave in a certain way. You may have to do things to protect your female family members more, depending on where you live, depending on what they're doing in their daily lives. There are certain steps you will have to take, because it is your duty to protect those entrusted to your care. It may be that you will support or oppose certain political policies, because they have a likelihood of harming your neighbor or helping your neighbor. These are moral questions. These are not matters of indifference. These are real questions that Christians have to answer in a Christian way. And the first step in doing that is to recognize that they exist. Then you look at the data. Then you can make a decision. One of the ironies of the situation is that as Marxism advances in our society and gains complete control over how people speak and think, you're beginning to see more innocuous versions of what we're saying being said out loud in headlines that we typically will just scoff at as being insane. I saw re recently that there was a, a cheating scandal. I think at one of the uh, one of the United States military academies, and the accusation that came as a result of the cheating scandal was that anti-cheating rules are racist because as they have increased the so-called diversity quotas to lower the standards of who may be let into our elite institutions for the military, 
more and more non-whites are entering those places where they were not academically qualified, but they are statistically qualified in order to meet quotas. Those population groups, in turn, cheat at such significantly higher rates that it creates huge scandals. And then the headline is, saying that cheating is cheating is racist. And like I said, we laugh at that when we hear it, and we think, well, that's just absurd. I think that they're telling the truth, not about the accusation of racism. They're telling the truth about the fact that at some point we must admit that it's unreasonable to expect someone who's not white to behave in ways that we consider normal. And I think that's the hurdle that a lot of us have to get over is what we think of as normal is rooted in our own experience. And I don't just mean your personal lived experience. I mean everything that you can comprehend as a human being. When I gave that horrible description earlier of what happens with in Africa with Africans behaving against their own family members, that's unthinkable to you. Anyone who's listening to my voice right now would never even occur to you to do anything like that. You can't comprehend it. And yet for them, it's completely normal. So when there's a massive cheating scandal at one of the major universities, and it turns out that all the cheaters are black, the Marxists will say, well, saying that cheating is wrong is racist. And everyone else will just make excuses for this woke stupidity. I think that we should, as Christians, look at the question which we are raising, and we obviously have our answer, but you may not accept our answer. You should at least ask the question of yourself. Why is it that an African-American in one of the military academies would feel free to cheat and think that that was okay? Why is it so widespread that it's the norm there? And it's not just cheating. You have things like timeliness is, is racist. To say that someone should show up on time or that certain things should happen at certain times, you've probably seen headlines where that is declared to be racist. And we just laugh at it. You're like, well, like... Corey and I start recording this at 2.30 every day unless something goes wrong. Just sort of automatically fell into that pattern. For us, there's no concept of race being involved in timeliness. It's just how we are. It's, it's precision and it's predictability, and it's something that we appreciate, and it's something that our society is built around. If <laughs> We'll talk about this more in the IQ episode, but the notion of time doesn't really exist for Africans in the same way, if at all. So when you hear, you see a headline that says timeliness is racist, they're not wrong. They're wrong, is again, about the accusation of, of committing some sin, you know, which you know, we'll, we'll do a racism episode because that's, that's nonsense. But the idea that something wrong with expecting a black person to show up on time, what they're, they're saying the quiet part out loud there. They're saying that black people can't understand why showing up on time would even be a thing. The thing doesn't begin until they show up. So why does it matter when they show up? They were doing something else, and now they're doing this. And these differences, once you strip away the cultural and all the other baggage, the only explanations that are left are genetic. And they're genetic writ large at the racial level, at the major category level. There are lots of different ethnicities within Africa that all have variations on similar themes. There are some populations that have much higher IQs than others, but they're all at least a standard deviation below the white IQ in the United States. There's a reason for that, and it's not nutrition, and it's not that they don't have good schools. 
you know, when we talk, we talked about schooling a few times. If someone is fundamentally not capable of living up to your standards, at what point do you as a Christian realize that it's cruel to try to make someone live up to your standards? Now, when the Marxists say that, they're saying we need to lower standards. We're not saying that at all. We're saying that the idea of holding someone accountable to a standard of morality and of behavior to which they are constitutionally incapable of living up to it, you have to look at that seriously and you have to ask some hard questions that haven't been asked in a long time. Because if they can't do it, and it's not a question of teaching, if they absolutely cannot do it because of how they were born, because of the race that they were born, that's that's the proposition that we're making. And some of you are going to reject it outright and find it hateful. Others, when you look at the data, you're going to have a hard time disagreeing with us. But if we're right, if we're telling the truth about genetic variations in behavior, in attitudes, and frankly, in morality, as a society and as a church, those differences must be a factor in how we deal with these people groups. We can't treat them like they're just like us if they're going to behave in ways that are so alien that we can't even wrap our minds around it. And so what do we do? What have we been doing for the past few uh, generations? We've been pretending that the differences don't exist. And then as there's been more and more integration, and we've been told that segregation was evil and integration is good, and then we see that the effects of integration are greater degrees of criminality and injury and harm, the only moral question that can come from that is what do we do now? If you admit that race is biological and that there are certain behaviors and certain propensities that are biological, then looking at someone and being able to determine with a certain degree of probability that they're going, that they belong to a group that does something. You can't tell by looking at an individual what they're going to do, but you can tell by looking at them that they belong to a group that's more likely to, to do this thing. So if that group is deadly to your own group, you need to acknowledge first that there are two groups and that one is more dangerous than the other, and two, that there are societal and legal implications to that. And simply saying, one race, the human race, and Jesus died for us all, doesn't fix the real danger and the real harm that's happening in the, in the real world by us ignoring these differences. And we do already recognize some of this in our legal system. Anyone with any sort of legal training is going to immediately recognize, well, of course, we have different standards for different things. There are the different standards of proof. Certain things have to be proved to a higher degree. Typically, criminal matters are a higher degree than civil matters. Civil matters are usually 51%. It's just more likely than not. The murder is not actually the highest one. Many people will answer that one wrong. They think murder will have to be the highest proof. It's not. The intent for murder is malice of forethought, which there's no point in getting into the technicalities of that. But the highest one is specific intent, which is you had the intent to do the thing you did and caused the outcome you caused. But we also have defenses for capacity. If you were intoxicated at the time, that may excuse you to some degree. If you were intoxicated unwillingly, that may excuse you to a very large degree, perhaps entirely. If someone drugged you, you're typically not responsible for whatever you did while drugged, insofar as the drug was responsible for your behavior, of course. 
But we also have capacity defenses if you are mentally retarded in the technical sense of the term, not the derogatory, the pejorative sense, the technical sense. If you are mentally retarded, you are held to a different standard because you probably don't understand the duties that everyone else knows you have in a certain situation. And so it would not be morally appropriate to hold someone to this higher standard because you are saying you should have known to someone who entirely lacks the capacity to do that. You can't hold someone to a duty to do something that is impossible. That's immoral. Now, of course, I'm not making a theological point there. So for anyone who is thinking that God holding us to the standard of perfection is wrong, no, actually it's not because Adam could have we inherit his original sin, which is another part that is theologically important for this. There will those who say, how is it fair to hold someone responsible for effectively the sins of the parents? Well, original sin is kind of a core of our religion. So if you have a problem with what we're saying about the consequences for future generations of the behavior of past generations, then you should probably go back and review original sin and how that works in the Christian religion. You've missed something. But when it comes to issues of capacity, we know that certain groups of people have to be held to a different standard. No, we don't permit them to cause crimes. We don't permit them to do things that are illegal, cause harm, etc. But we recognize that you have to take into account the abilities they bring to the table, the capacity they have to understand their duties, the things they should and should not do. And so you do treat them differently. Part of that, historically, has been treating them differently at the outset. So, preventing the problem from occurring instead of addressing it once it occurs. To go back to the issue of rape, what is going to be better for a woman who is raped? If you had prevented the rape or if you punished the rapist? I don't think that's a very hard call to make. I think most people can probably make that one. The same for someone who is severely mentally disabled. What's better, carefully monitoring that person and controlling what he does, or letting him run free and then injuring himself or others? Well, of course you want to prevent him from injuring himself or others. And so there are certain things you have to do in society to take into account the abilities of different groups of people and of different individuals in society. We have not been doing that for decades now. We closed the asylum, for instance. We basically let the mentally unwell roam the streets now. Usually this causes minor property damage and significant damage to those individuals themselves. Many of them wind up dying of overdoses in the streets. That's a very real moral problem. That is something we are not addressing as a society. This is akin to that because you are dealing with with something that has a biological basis in the individual and in groups of individuals. And you have to account for that in how you run your society, because it is a moral question. If you ignore it, what you are doing is immoral. Ignoring it is the actual sin here. So next week's episode, we're going to focus specifically on Scripture. Uh, We're going to focus on the arguments that are used from Scripture against many of the things that we've said, Um, Again, not directly addressing the facts, because facts are truth, and truth is from God, so you can't use Scripture against truth. But there are are scriptural arguments that are often posed that just ignore everything we've said for the past two weeks 
and try to focus on other things. So we want to address those explicitly because we're Christians, we're Lutherans. It's a scripture is more important than what your lying eyes tell you. What we're trying to say is that your lying eyes aren't actually lying to you in this case. You can believe God and you can believe statistics. And if you're looking at the right ones, you're going to reach a godly conclusion. So we're not, we're going to move on from the statistical stuff for the next week. And we're going to specifically focus on what does this have to do with us in the church? Because really that's the fundamental question that I think most of us have in mind. Like if you assume for the sake of argument that we have told the truth for the past two weeks, where do we go from here? How do we make sure that we're dealing with people in a Christian way that also, well, in a Christian way, in a way that acknowledges scripture, in a way that acknowledges duty to brother and to neighbor and all the various vocational aspects that are fundamental to the Christian life. So next week's episode, we'll focus on that. And then the following week, we're going to do one last statistical episode that's going to very specifically focus on IQ. It's one we've teased for a while. IQ is such a big part of this conversation that it needs to be its own its own episode. So we wanted to segregate that by itself so that it can stand alone. Um, that's going to be in two parts. First, talking about kind of the higher end and what we see in, in Western society, and then what the implications are for those who have such diminished capacity, as Corey just mentioned, criminally. If, if the law says that someone is too retarded to be held accountable for their behavior— and we'll get into some of the reasons why that's not, it may be morally questionable, but legally there's a case to be made there. What do we do with Christians, with people who cannot understand cause and effect, with people who cannot understand hypotheticals? How do you catechize someone who can't understand later versus now? These are very real and fundamental questions, and it's part of why we're talking about race. This is not about hating people and excluding. It's about saying, these people exist. God died for them. Jesus Christ paid for all of their sins on the cross, just like he paid for ours. Whether or not someone has more sins than others, Jesus paid for 100% of them. We're not talking about who's better. We're talking about what are the needs in this life for different groups of people, because the needs are not the same. The way you would explain the gospel to a man like Corey or myself, if we were not Christian, is very different than the way you would explain to someone who had the mental capacity of a five-year-old. That should be obvious, but when we realize how it falls into race, it becomes a gospel issue. And that's ultimately why we're talking about this. We're talking about how we as Christians can behave in a Christian way with people who have capacities and needs and proclivities that are different from our own. We're not trying to say, be unfair to these people or mistreat them. We're saying, given the reality that we face what is the most Christian path forward for all of us? And that is a conversation that will be rooted next week in Scripture, and then we're ultimately going to end up dealing with how do you spread the gospel to people who have fundamentally different mental understanding and capability in their own. So I hope that you'll stick with us for all this, because this, again, it's all a part of a piece. It began with Christian nationalism episode. It continued in the election episode, and then these these multiple episodes are going to hopefully wrap it all up. I, I hope that you find some value in this, even if it upsets you and even if you're not sure about some of the things we're saying. We're approaching this in good faith, and we're doing it in complete honesty, and we're doing it, frankly, because people who talk this way will be destroyed in the world. If you agreed with what we said last week, 
be careful about who you, whom you tell that to, because you could get fired for saying the things we said last week. And you could certainly get fired for the things we've said this week. And on the IQ episode, you'll never get hired again if you agree with any of what we say. Now, either we're horrible, racist, hateful liars, or we're telling you something that most people are afraid of. You can figure that out for yourselves. But I appreciate the those who are sticking with us and listening to these things and at least asking the questions yourself, what do I do with this information? As I said at the at the outside of this episode, some people are like, well, I don't see the point. Hopefully we're starting to make the point. This stuff about race and about biological differences isn't about picking on people or pointing at people and calling names. It's about saying, as a Christian, what do I do in these circumstances when someone looks similar to me but is going to behave and have a capacity for very different things than I have to the point that I can't understand them? What do I do? What does God want me to do? What does Scripture say? And how can I proceed in good conscience and in accord with the vocations that God has given me where I live? Just to emphasize that, nothing that we are doing is done out of malice. Everything we are doing on this podcast is done in the interest of defending Scripture when they come up the confessions and the creation as the Creator made it, which is to say we are defending the Christian faith. We are doing it with regard to certain subjects that have fallen out of favor. These aren't things that would have been out of place, say, 100, 200, 300, any number of years ago, except for the last maybe 60 or 70. We are dealing with issues that are fundamental to reality, to the faith. And that's why we're addressing them. Because it is important for Christians to get these things right. Now, as was mentioned, if you bring these up in your place of work, you may be fired. If you bring them up in your church, you may be disciplined. But there will be times when you can discuss these with like-minded men, with those who are actually still open to the truth, because they do exist. We know that from, we can see how many listens to this podcast, and we will discuss those numbers in some point in the future. But it is vitally important that Christians learn about the reality of the world and what Scripture actually says. Not what the world tells you Scripture says, not what Marxists tell you about the world, but the world as it is, and Scripture as God intends for you to read it, as God wrote it. That's why we're doing this. None of it is out of malice. None of it is out of ill will. It is only with the best of intentions. Because as Christians, our first duty is to God, and God is goodness, beauty, and truth. <laughs>